Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Alexandra Deshaun Sosino, who is a London-based author, consultant, public speaker, and entrepreneur with a background in industrial and interaction design. She wrote Smarter Homes, How Technology Will Change Your Home Life, and she's the author of the new book, Creating a Culture of Innovation, Design, an Optimal Environment to Create and Execute New Ideas. And that's actually the book that we're going to be spending the lion's share of our time discussing. So thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you for having me. As I was telling you in the little bit of a chat we were having before I actually hit record and got us on our little journey here, is I just very recently finished the book. So there's a lot of the central organizing ideas are fresh in my mind, and they're also written fiercely in all of my notes. So I really want to start at the very beginning, which is an appropriate place to start every any conversation. You know, the title of the book, again, is Creating a Culture of Innovation. And I really want to start at, at defining those terms because both culture and innovation are so widely used, so often, you know, kind of thrown around haphazardly. I think it's important to get a sense of how you understand those terms, and then we can start to dig into the book. Yeah, I mean, I'll caveat what I'm about about to say with a very simple thing, which is that my publisher chooses the titles of my books. And so I let them do their job, which they do really well, which is pick uh, attractive titles for what I think are very, Smarter Homes was very similar I think I cross areas and boundaries and topic areas very easily in my books. And so they're sort of an interesting journey, and especially this one, an interesting journey in the history of innovation work, the history of what we call innovation thinking and innovation practices, and the reality or the recent reality of dedicated innovation spaces where nothing really happens, but they're sort of named in that way. So it's a mixture, really, of architectural history, business history, management consulting history, as well as based on my own consulting work and my own client base of the last 15 years. So all of these things kind of come together in a hopefully an elegant and readable way. But yeah, the title, I think, doesn't necessarily connect to the content of the book in such an easy way, because the content of the book is very multi-headed. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that I observed that as you went through each chapter, they stand alone. So I think depending on your particular interest, you can really pick up the book and engage anywhere. But if you read it in the order in which it's presented, it built a very powerful case So I noted that like right away within that complexity of the book itself, they are a lot of very elegant and connected tissue. And I really want to start in the first chapter, which is the notion of creating space and the tools that we use 
to do that. In your estimation, when we think about particularly like the open space or the open home as ideas, are these notions finite in a way or are they sort of infinite notions of how we're thinking about open space and open design? Well, I think that we have taken an approach to say that because an office space or even an innovation space is open and therefore you can kind of see your colleagues across the room and across immense rooms, sometimes people's offices are huge. You're in Brooklyn, I'm in London, we've got skyscrapers full of open office spaces. I think people mistook that openness for collaboration and just having people stand around in the same space does not make them collaborate with each other more. And I explore in the book in the first chapter all of the history of really the conundrum that we have with these spaces, which is they're massively distracting. They don't necessarily allow people to take some quiet time to think through ideas, to develop them in their own minds and in their own time before then showing them to colleagues, showing them to bosses, asking for more budget. Our spaces are incredibly distracting. The computer technology that we have is also the conversation you and I are having. I'm at home, which is about the least distracting place you could have right now because I live on my own. But if I was in a co-working space, I would have had to go off into a conference room somewhere to have a call because there's no other environment that's given to me in order for me to have a quiet conversation with someone who just doesn't happen to be in the same environment. And so I deconstruct our natural tendency to interpret open spaces as collaborative and dynamic environments and environments that supposedly are great for serendipity. And I really dive into that, I think, and I really critique that because that serendipity we seek does not necessarily pan out just because you've got an open space. I was laughing when I read that first chapter because I did a a lecture at Parsons I guess this is going back now, maybe a couple of years and talking about sustainability and different notions of design. And in it, I kind of charted a little bit, not as nowhere near as in depth as what you did in the book, but I used like some visuals to show cubicles, you know, when that was the rage for a while, you know, kind of the Dilbert notion of cubicles quickly lampooned despite the creator of Dilbert being a complete dick. So I didn't want to mention that because I'm not going to act like I'm giving kudos to Dilbert. But beyond that, then we went to this open concept, right? And my background, I used to be on a trading desk, which is maybe the originator of an open concept, but it was complete chaos all the time. But you also didn't go onto a trading desk expecting quiet solitude and reflection. Whereas I think these other spaces did kind of sell that, but were unable to deliver on it. So all of that preamble to say, do you think in your research and in your estimation that many of these design elements that we see were not, the people who create them or promote them are not thinking them through enough to get to the actual use case of effectiveness versus other things. Well, I think that I'm glad you bring up the trading desk sort of situation because I do think that journalism and banking have created both are areas that massively inspired, visually inspired people to think of open spaces as being collaborative. 
there's not a single film about a journalistic environment that doesn't have people surrounded by stuff and surrounded by people having phone calls continuously, people, you know, shuffling paper around, giving it to someone to type up, people with very loud typewriters or mechanical keyboards or whatever. And they were always creating the myth of the dynamic work environment. And then at the other end entirely, you had labs and medical research, for example, which is a completely other environment where it's much more about being able to control the circumstances, have a very uh, controlled work environment where you don't you do the right thing at the right time with the right kind of timings and ingredients, etc. And those two extremes, I think, have informed what we've ended up in the middle of the bell curve, which is sort of neither here nor there. So attempts to make something look dynamic because of interior design choices. But in fact, the real driver is the cost and the cost of fitting out a space and also the cost of fitting out a space between different owners, no ownership structures or leasers or whoever happens to come into the building, go bankrupt, have to be replaced by someone else again. And so an open space provides you with the monetary argument that it's cheaper to sort of transition between businesses, no matter where they are in their journey as a building owner. But it doesn't touch the sides of what you should be considering when looking at how people think, how people work together, how people collaborate best, how to be more inclusive, how not to isolate people away from good conversations. All of that, I don't think, comes into an act of designing these spaces. And it made me think about, I want to jump to people, but I'm going to hold that notion for a second because I jotted down quite a bit about the Rand example that you use in that chapter. And I'm going to read off some of the components of why the rants, what the rant space wanted to incorporate, because I found it to be very thoughtful in connection to another idea. In the rant example, they mentioned seeking privacy, seeking quiet, natural light, natural air, and spaciousness. And all of those design elements were incorporated into the space with the anticipation of driving particular results through the work environment. And that sort of thoughtfulness in design and in intention seems to be completely in opposition to what you just described, where space is now an asset to a developer or a piece of real estate. How do we get back to, or should we get back to, a more Randian, if that's a word, model of thinking about our spaces? As long as we're not talking about Ayn Rand, yeah, I think. Yeah, um, let's, make, uh, <laughs> let's make sure the caveat is out there as well. <laughs> I think the Rand uh, still a successful corporation today. I think what they were attempting to do, I think, was very clever, which is to say, how can we create a sense of neighborliness inside of our organization? And when I use that word, what I really mean is, you know your neighbors because you're interacting with them often enough. You're developing a relationship with them that's casually growing as time goes by and then increases in trust. And eventually you get them to 
receive parcels from you and then eventually they might walk your dog when you're on holiday. So that growing trust, I think, is also what Rand recognized was important for people who might be individually very successful researchers, but together could also make things happen that they were anticipating would change the course of what they did, which absolutely proved to be right. And so that neighborliness, I think people don't appreciate as much today. They very rarely have the, I suppose, the luxury of what Rand had, which is to say, let's build an entire building for this purpose and this purpose only. We will take our researchers that are working across America and we will helicopter them out of what they're doing and invite them into sunny Santa Monica environments. And we will give them the quietness and space to reflect, but also these patios where they might meet the same people over and over and over again, build trust, neighborliness, and make great ideas happen. I want to take that extended a little bit more because when I read that example and the intentionality behind it, it made me think about how so much of our spaces and I could also be projecting sort of a a certain type of urbanness as someone who is is a New Yorker and, and spends my time, even my time in the before times when we would travel and move around primarily in cities that, So much of the focus and attention on innovation and on culture is in building spaces for what I'm calling imperfectly mind work, work that is laptop driven, ideation, knowledge economy, whatever kind of words we want to use as compared to labor, like physical labor. And in light of the moment we're in, the pandemic, where we're seeing so much of the brunt of this moment falling on the shoulders of those doing that kind of physical work in Amazon plants and in meatpacking plants and all the places, how do we think about making those spaces safe and spaces that are innovative in the same way that these mind spaces are? And again, I'm using imperfect language, but I think you get what I'm saying. I do. I think there, what I refer to in the book that I still come back to is a fantastic example of corporate environment that really understood the value of, well, basically treating your employees well, no matter what they did for you, was Olivetti, the typewriter manufacturer, still technically a brand that I think is owned by Siemens now but was an incredibly successful global business until the late 70s and had started in 1908. And they made typewriters. It's very much factory work. It's not particularly glamorous, but they understood the value of having so much company culture that if you were a factory worker and you weren't educated, you didn't have secondary school education or you hadn't completed your high school diploma, they would help you do that. You could go up to the director and ask him in the early years, director of the plant, their first plant in northern Italy, would give his employees financial advice to help them spend their paycheck better. I mean, that kind of decision making and that kind of employee, like basic employee respect, right? 
is not only no longer de rigueur, but also massively unpopular with businesses that are there to squeeze the living life out of you if you're an employee, because you're not even an employee, you're a contractor. And in the UK this week, the Supreme Court, or last week rather, the Supreme Court judged that Uber was in fact an employer. That's a really big deal uh, for us here at least. And this lack of respect means that you're very unlikely to see spaces that are catering to the needs of those employees and that would help those employees not only enjoy their work more, but actually stick around longer. I'm sure that the turnover rate of part-time contractors must be incredibly high. The training budgets must be incredibly high as well. But this idea that you can exploit people I think is much stronger than encouraging corporations to, you know, make their lives better. This notion of people and knowledge is going to come back up in a couple of questions. I'm going to shift us into chapter two, but I want to engage a little bit around design and decor as a signal. And this notion that if we create certain aesthetics, then it will by nature be an innovative space. And I think about um, early on in WeWork, they talked a lot about we're a community. That was like a big part of their kind of shtick. And I would always laugh to myself because every WeWork, no matter where I went in the world, looked exactly the same. There's going to be some random design books and there's going to be a lamp on top of the design books, you know, it's going to be like an oak table. <laughs> like, you know, it was always the same thing. And I always thought to myself, like, this is just such a pottery barn signal, my stand in for that type of furniture. So I'm curious in all of your work and research, how you think about that notion of kind of design and decor as a signal toward something. Well, I think for me, that was definitely a point early maybe early 2000s, where a Swedish aesthetic of interior design moved up a notch from Ikea into a sort of aesthetic of hygge or comfort or sort of winter comfort materials that then seeped into office design. So they sort of started invading cafes first, but then you look at the average WeWork and it sort of looks like a cafe, and, you know, like a very high-end, very bougie sort of coffee place. All of that signaling of choosing wood at all in a work environment, choosing exposed wood, choosing to curate your waiting room in such a way that you could almost be forgiven for thinking that you're in an Ikea because there's enough strangely home-based decor involved. All of that, I think, were decisions that were not necessarily massively driven by anything other than making sure you'd spend slightly more hours there than if you were in an office space that just looked like an office space. Regis, which is the largest provider of flexible office space in the UK before we work, their office spaces just looked like grown-up office spaces. There was a sort of 1990s furniture aesthetic to them. The buildings weren't particularly brand new, but if you needed a meeting room to conduct some business, you'd give them whatever, 60 pounds an hour, and you were done. 
Whereas WeWork came in with that entire sort of cafe aesthetic, which people had been, of course, because of Silicon Valley and of course, because of the internet, people had transitioned from working in garages to working in cafes. And so they were already sort of inoculated with this idea that an office space could also look like a cafe. So I think WeWork just sort of went ahead and just steamrolled ahead with that. And then everyone else then just thought, oh, yes, those startups that started in cafes, now they're here. And now they're in those kinds of places. And I like how you describe this WeWork aesthetic as a community, because in really, it's not so much a community as more of a replicated model in the same way that you go to an Ikea everywhere around the world. You basically have more or less the same experience, but that creates a level of comfort somehow in the same way that places like Shortage House in London has membership clubs around the world, and they all sort of feel like the same versions of each other. So I think it's that familiarity that's being built in. Yeah, absolutely. If you're in WeWork, there's going to be some fruity water while you're waiting. (laughs) So you can always get some fruity water. And if you're in the Soho House shortage area, when you go to the bathroom, there's going to be some molten brown waiting for you. <laughs> Guaranteed, maybe ASOP as well. I, I was going to say it's probably ASOP these days. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely going to be something like that. And I had a question down. I was going to skip it, but since you mentioned Silicon Valley, I want to bring that up because it seems to me that Silicon Valley has become more than an, in my mind, I think it's become more than a place, right? It's an idea that has so many other things as a part of it. It's how we have chosen to allocate resources. It has notions of bias. It tends to favor big places, which really means big cities. So I want to try to maybe get a sense for how that has, like, and you started to go in this place is why I wanted to leap onto it, like how that has so much permeated the way in which we think about design, space, resources, and also even surveillance. Like there's so much a part of how they have cooked surveillance into their product, which now seems to be a big part of our home life, our office life, our everyday life. There's a lot in there, but I just wanted to kind of dump it. (laughs) No, I'm going to pick up a couple of things. One, which is, I think the we sort of don't really remember, but really should remember that there's a very rich history of military funding to all of this. And so some of what's happening, which is very much a overinvestment in computer vision technologies that lead to massive amount of surveillance technologies, very inelegant surveillance technologies, especially if you're a person of any other ethnic background than white, you're going to really struggle to either be identified by these services. And this, I just read this morning, a little girl was having trouble using software for school because she's a black girl who then had to be facing a window with a lampshade under her face for the piece of software to be able to be used for her. And so you just have these militarized pieces of research that are narrowly focused 
anything that's sort of advertising based has obviously been proven to be kind of able to pay its way longer than something that doesn't. And so you're either selling to the military or it's an advertising product is basically the sort of subtitle to the last 20 years of tech development. And I think that people forget that. In London, for example, some of my friends coined in 2007-8, they coined an area of London as being Silicon Roundabout because there's a big roundabout next to Old Street Station. And it was about naming a place as being somehow associated with the effects of that military history, which is, oh, innovation work and high value, high net worth innovation work that you could then make a billion out of, hypothetically. It's not necessarily proven to be the case. We don't have a lot of unicorns outside of Silicon Valley. There are no huge investments in very, very early stage startups are very rare because the attitude to investment is completely different. And the culture of backing a young horse is just not a very English thing to do at all. And so I do think that there's a mystique and a myth around Silicon Valley that every other country in the world tries to replicate. And I think for very good reasons, and I'm thankful for those reasons, mostly fails. And I think that's good. I don't think it's right and proper for a model that exists in a culture in a very particular part of the world to be cookie cutter applied everywhere else successfully. Yeah, I I would argue Silicon Valley doesn't even apply its own model all that successfully. (laughs) But that's a topic for a whole other show. Um, But it is a chance to kind of talk about people. And I want to kind of shift us a little bit there. Though I am going to use a piece of chapter one to kind of get us into chapter two, because I was thinking as we reflected on the sameness of many of these spaces, the sameness of many of these tools, we're all using Macs and some of us are using Slack. I'm not. But, you know, we have all these things that are supposed to make us innovative and connected. And and there's a lot of sameness in that. And it made me think about, is there an idea or an opportunity for the mitigating factor to actually become the people? You know, that if we make these spaces more diverse, despite the fact that the space is the same and the tools are the same, the people and what they bring into these spaces can be the mitigating factor. Because I can think of many times when I've been in some of these so-called innovative spaces and it's not a lot of brown in them spaces, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I'm kind of Not a curious. lot of women either. Yeah. 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 There's not a lot of women. And even in, in the cases like something like The Wing, where they make it about women, it is, but it ain't that sort of feminist notions that just kind of support empire, you know, foot soldiers of the patriarchy. Not saying they all were, but I'm just saying the the value system. So with all that editorializing, like I'm curious about like bringing us into people as a differentiating factor, and then I'm going to launch into a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I think I'll mention two things that are in the book that I think are worth looking at, which is Obviously, we are all in a global, more heightened state of a conversation that's about 100 years old about racism in our societies. 
maybe by the time I'm dead, we'll have made some progress. I have very little confidence, but I'd like to think that some of what I contribute in the book can help some people make some decisions. But space between people even sitting in the same room, space that is curated digitally and from job titles to whose opinion you ask, all of that has an effect on who contributes to the conversation. And so it's kind of lazy to just say, I'll hire in a diverse way. It has to go beyond that. And certainly, I think major corporations are still struggling with this notion that just having some numbers and upping the numbers is enough. I think people's perspectives when they come from a different ethnic background, but also different ability and on the scale of abilities, have something to contribute, definitely have something to contribute to making sure the products that are made by that company are made for everyone. The backslapping that has recently been happening with Nike and their shoe for people who are, might not be able to normally take on and off a shoe is really interesting to me because that's the tip of the iceberg, really. And it's a company that's quite old, and you would have thought perhaps that kind of work should have come to the fore a bit earlier than 2020. But I think the way in which we do innovation work, the way in which we socialize ideas, who gets asked for their opinion at what point really matters. And if the people in the room who are supposedly there to do the innovation are not diverse, it's very unlikely that the people that they will then ask for support or for their opinion will also be diverse. And it's even less likely that they'll integrate their feedback adequately. And so a person that comes from a diverse background will just shut down because not only are they not the second person that gets asked in the room, whenever they do have something to say, their feedback isn't really taken on board, then you lose. You lose at every possible level. Yeah. And it's funny because not funny, haha, but funny, kind of like mm, 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 head shaking funny that <laughs> there's a portion of this conversation where you talked about like this notion of like the titles that we give folks, their CVs, and it offers in a way what I think of as permission to be innovative versus others and use an example that just always used to, it probably still does, annoy me, which was, you know, David Shing, right? Slash Shingy. And this notion of this person being a futurist because he signaled just really being like a weird, odd guy, right? Like, at least I don't know him. This is not a personal thing, but I'm saying like the branding of him to me always landed in this space of I'm really odd. And it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to end but it there. I, I think you know. what's interesting is for <laughs> characters like that, and you could call it a sort of celebrity making, is the fact that it still sits within context, a cultural context that people are ready to accept. So weird, but an acceptable version of weird, which is also, I think, very much in line if I think of the character that he kind of created over his years at AOL uh, was very much in line with anime from the 1980s and 90s that I would have been perfectly comfortable with. I'm a 40-year-old woman, which means the average sort of program manager in the average corporation is probably my age-ish and probably also recognizes that. Mm 
And so it wasn't that much of a departure. It was sort of weird enough to be accepted as being the person representing some kind of, it was a representation that was acceptable. And I do think that's also a really odd form of xenophobia, which is also to say there are representations that are not acceptable, but we're not going to tell you which. We're going to pick the one we like. I 100% agree. It was very Ghost in the Shell, Akira meets Cyberpunk, which is all of these things that, you know, I would read these magazines and see this stuff and I'd be like, God, this is such bullshit. But I knew exactly why it was working, right? Because it was very um, fetish in a way. And I want to pull that out to this notion of permission, right? Like as you're thinking about people and the knowledge that they possess navigating these spaces, who gets permission to be the innovator? Who gets the permission to stand on the stage and kind of rah-rah? And does the stage matter? Well, not only that, but if you've decided to assign importance to someone enough that they do get to be on a stage to talk about things, are they also a person who Thomas Allen would describe as a technology gatekeeper, which is actually someone who is there to not only talk at people, but listen to them and listen to what they might contribute to an internal project. Notionally, that's what these so-called evangelists are there to do. Sometimes I think it works, sometimes I think it doesn't. And it is a sort of very minimal PR exercise, really. And David Shingy's title before that was a marketing title, which I highlight in the book. And a marketing title that in a way is a lot more understandable as a title. So why go the extra mile to create this other thing that is a confusing array of weird biblical borrowing and then within the context of conferences and conference speaking, which has nothing to do with, as we know, conferences are all about the corridor track and the deeper conversations you have with people outside of the stage. That's actually where all the good stuff is. So if that person isn't doing that, what are they doing for you and for your product and for your company? And if it is only marketing, just call it what it is. So it's interesting that you mention this notion of biblical and these terms like evangelist and evangelism come up quite often in these kind of innovation spaces. And kind of to jump a little bit onto your examples about conferences, there are notions of conferences as someone who's been in the audience and I've been on the stage, so I've had both of those experiences that do feel very much like like you're entering into a cathedral of sorts, or for those who might be familiar with sort of American televangelism, they feel very much like what I saw as a kid in the seventies with all these people kind of Bible in one hand as they like thump their product and send me money and do all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious as you think about how we create these spaces, is this an intentionality behind like kind of ginning that up? Or is it just that we've seen, if we're of a certain age, that we kind of talked about that, like I'm, you know, I'm older than I'm 48 for those who might be curious, but nonetheless, I grew up in a time when that was prevalent. So it's kind of cooked into my mind, made my mind think. So what do you think about that as kind of tying in the biblical notions? 
Well, I think that's actually a book I would love to write next, which is uh, Dogma and Design and all of the kind of very odd religious inspirations, but religious borrowing and stealing from religious kind of concepts and spiritual concepts for the purposes of either selling things or selling processes in design. The first person, of course, or the first context to come up with the word evangelist was in the context of Apple. And of course, we know that Steve Jobs was someone who was sort of borrowed left, right, and center from Buddhism and was very interested in spiritualism as a a sort of starting point to the point where People literally thought that his work environment was as pristine as the apartment photos of him in the 70s, even though later photography shows you his work environment is just being like you and I, just full of stuff everywhere. And that idea of borrowing from the church, and we're obviously never really capable of borrowing from the black church because that experience just looks absolutely amazing and more amazing than any conference I have ever been to. And that's also, I think, a form of theft, a form of wanting to steal from the enthusiasm that people find in rooms when together because they're bound by something other than capital and they're bound by something other than an intellectual interest in something. I think that conferences are always aiming for that, in a way, Black church experience and I think that they mostly fail, of course, which is why the fun stuff happens in the corridors, because everyone sort of goes into a room, sits to someone talking at them as they might have done in primary school. So their whole life they've been lectured at, more or less. So it ends up being lecture theaters and a university environment, much more than it is a sort of just religious experience. But it aims to be a religious experience. Yeah. If you don't got the good band, you ain't doing the black church thing. That ain't going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. So you're going to, you're definitely going to miss out without that element. I want to get to a couple more things just as I'm looking at the time, because I do want to get, I'm going to actually skip our off the dome for this particular conversation. Cause I want to get to the drop. Cause I want to tease out one more question if I can, which is when you start to talk about communication and the communication begins to create a relationship in and of itself and signaling, does it signal certain things? You kind of walk through this notion of email and the transient nature of email, the unpaid labor of email, how what it expects from us. And it made me really think about Zoom in this moment of pandemic because it's become You know, you see all the jokes all the time, like, oh, this Zoom could have been an email, right? And all that kind of stuff. And I also think about how Zoom has eliminated the notion of the snow day, right? There was a time when if you live in a climate that had snow, when it snowed, you didn't go to work and you kind of work from home, but you kind of really didn't, right? And, And now with Zoom, it doesn't matter. We're available all the time. There is no train broke down. There is no anything. You know, I've noticed people like very like insistent on time more than ever on Zoom, right? Like if the Zoom starts at 11 and you're not there at 1101, it's like, where were you? Where are you? Right. And back in the day, if you were late for a meeting, it was like, hey, you know, train was late. Screw it. (laughs) Right. So I'm curious about what you think about Zoom in relation to the other communication tools that you mentioned in the book. Well, I think that any video 
conferencing technology of the last 10 years has really supported this idea of, in the UK, we call it presenteeism. So the idea that just showing up is the most important thing, not how productive you are, but the fact that you showed up. So people have meetings with 10 people in a room that make no decision. The meeting really shouldn't be happening at all because actually it's down to the decision makers. There's two of them and the rest is just padding to make yourself feel important or supported or God knows what. And that happened before the pandemic. People would have meetings for no particular reason, just for the fun of seeing your colleagues. And I think now we've gone the other way entirely, which is I know people who spend half hour Zoom calls all day long, when actually none of us would have scheduled meetings this way. People would have put their hand up to say, no, we can't have this many physical meetings. I can't go from one meeting room to the next every half hour to settle on something because that transition time of saying hello to people to take an extra minute to just ask them how their kids are or what's going on in their life, an extra minute to also go, well, let's finish this one off early and let's go to the pub or whatever. Those are really important aspects of work because they help people stay in work, not just for the employment opportunity and the paycheck, but also for the camaraderie, which gets you to the ideas that you wouldn't normally have in the meeting. Just because you name a meeting, the innovation meeting, doesn't mean anyone is going to have a good idea right on the spot. And if you don't create that time for lateral thinking, lateral, again, neighborliness, that's not what Zoom is for. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more as someone who is self-claimed Luddite when it comes to technology and dealing with a lot of things. I mean, this is a been a wonderful conversation. I could keep this going forever, but I can't. So I want to give us a time for the drop. So the drop is just an intellectual morsel. It's a nugget that we share with our listeners. So I have one and happy to go first, or you can go first, however you want to play it. You do it. You go. All right. I can go first. I watch everything. I'm a big consumer of content, even though like Mark Scorsese says, we shouldn't really call it content, but I love movies and TV and all kinds of stuff. And I've recently been going back and I rewatched Big Love, which ran at, I guess, HBO's golden era. It was kind of very much adjacent to The Sopranos and those kind of shows when prestige TV really meant something. And it was a series that I remember I really liked. It was one of my favorite series, but it wasn't a series that I had watched many times like some others. Like I've seen The Sopranos a million times, Mad Men a million times, Deadwood a million times. Like, But I didn't go back and watch Big Love until very recently. And it really stood out and struck me again as how important it was as a show. It tackled a lot of different issues. It's really worth going back and spending some time with if you're prone to enjoying shows like that. So Big Love from HBO is my drop. Mine, I guess, would be completely dissimilar vein because I'm actually not a subscriber to Netflix. I don't have a television. I don't watch any TV series at all. But what I do instead, which brings me a lot of joy in my life, is I read and I try to read as laterally as I can. So I'm going to forget the name now, but Going to Meet the Man by James Baldwin is what I read last week. And it was written, it's a series of short stories, so it's very easy to get into. And they were written between 1948 and 1960. And it continues to remind me 
how shocking our progress or lack thereof has been and how beautiful his writing in is and how uh, beautifully he captures a ton of different human perspectives on racism, on race, on the black community, both in America and in Europe. And I really recommend it. You can never go wrong with Baldwin. He's been coming up for me in quite a few conversations and correspondences. He's a presence in my life that is consistent since I was in junior high school, high school. So yeah, nothing that I could add to recommending anything that James Baldwin has ever put on a piece of paper. He's someone who his writing is so beautiful. It makes me angry that I even think of myself as a writer. So that is a great drop. And I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. This is a great conversation. As usual, I always feel like we barely scratched the surface, but the book is a really, really important one. I think it's one that anyone out here that's thinking about culture and design and innovation, they should 100% add it to their repertoire, add it to their library, all that good stuff. And um, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure having Alexandra Deschamps Sassino join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.